He is alone as he is brutalized first by the high priest and his associates and then later by the procurator of Rome. And this climactic moment comes as Jesus is clinging to life. It was, what, it was at that moment when He was hung on the cross and cried out the words of the opening line of Psalm 22, what Fred just read to us, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? The words that Jesus spoke at this point of the crucifixion had originally been penned by David, King David in the Old Testament. But the mystery of this psalm for us is this. When did David experience any of the things that are described in Psalm 22? At what point in his life did he experience any of the things described in Psalm 22? In verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, David is being publicly ridiculed. In verse 15, David is dying of thirst and his tongue is swelling up inside of his mouth. He's in danger of choking. In verse 16, his hands and feet have been pierced by something. By something. A shaft of, of a sword or a spear or something. Verse 16, he, his hands and feet have been pierced by something. Verse 17, they're gloating over David as he has become so emaciated that his bones are visible through his skin. What in the world's going on in Psalm 22? Well, Psalm 22, according to, to most commentators, is a description of a public execution. It's a description of a public execution. And the clincher to this is verse 18, where his clothes are divided up, which is something that executioners did. So there's the mystery of it. When was King David ever in danger of being executed? Where was the public trial? There's nothing there about it. In fact, it couldn't have happened to David and him remain at the same time the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. You did not have trials for kings. You had coups, you had rebellions like the one Absalom tried to pull off. Not only do I think this never happened to David, but it could not have happened to David. You'll remember that several years ago when we studied the life of David through the summer, that one of the unique things about King David is that we know more about his life than just about any other person, and maybe more than any other person in antiquity other than Jesus himself. And when you look at his life and you read those passages, there is not even a whiff of these kinds of things taking place in his life. And something else that is inexplicable, uh, inexplicable about this psalm is how it seems that God is treating David. Look in your Bibles at verses 4 and 5. Would say that God hears the cries of the faithful, but then in verse 1, God is treating David like one of the unfaithful. God is treating David as if he was a faithless man and not the man after God's own heart. In verse 1, God is not hearing him. In verse 1, God is tre treating David as if David is someone else. And then lastly, notice the mysterious ending to the psalm. In verses 20 through 21, David says, deliver me from death. In verse 22, David speaks as if the rescue and the deliverance has happened. And then he says in verse 27, that all the nations of the earth will hear about his deliverance. And they, in hearing about the deliverance that David has experienced, they will convert to the Lord. They will all turn to the Lord. What? 
David says that his personal deliverance will result in the salvation of the nations. In verses 30 through 31, all generations, all generations will remember this deliverance from death. Now, how could David see that? To me, Psalm 22 is unbelievably mysterious. How are we to make sense of it? Well, one of the things that we do is we accept what the Bible says about it. Look at what Peter says. You remember in Acts chapter 2 that everybody has gathered together. It's the day of Pentecost. And you know how Joel chapter 2 is, is, is being fulfilled with the pouring out of God's Spirit. And the apostles are speaking in tongues. And the, the Holy Spirit has come down upon them. And the people want to know what in the world is going on. What are, what's happening with these men? And some say that they are drunk. And Peter says, you know, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning. For anybody to be drunk. And then he begins to preach. And in verse 31, he says, speaking of David, seeing what was ahead, he, that is David, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Interesting. At some point, David is meditating on his own suffering. David is, is reflecting on his own suffering and contemplating about his own grief. And as he did so, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he gains prophetic insight into a greater David down the road who is experiencing a greater suffering and abandonment than what David is going through. And it is a greater deliverance that leads to an everlasting kingdom. And David sees it. And then centuries later, when Jesus cries out the opening lines, lines of Psalm 22, He is saying, in essence, that He is the one who makes sense of Psalm 22. And at the same time, He's saying Psalm 22 makes sense out of everything that the public, that everyone is seeing Him going through at that moment. And so what does this tell us about Jesus on the cross? Well, number one, it tells us that His suffering was infinitely terrible. When Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It signifies a horrific change that has taken place in Jesus' life. I mean, think, think about everything that the texts tell us up to this point about Jesus' suffering. He has been ridiculed. He has been lied about, misunderstood, brutally flogged until his strength falters. He is mocked. He is struck in the face. He is spat upon. Thorns are piercing his scalp and nails driven through his wrist. And all the while, Jesus basically says, not a thing, nothing, nada. There's something about the Christ. There is a, a poise and a buoyancy in all of this suffering. There's a poise about him that he keeps silent. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. He wasn't just beaten, he was afflicted. Yet, he did not open his, what church? Mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. All of that suffering, all of that pain, all of that derision, all of that humiliation and mocking and shame, that is heaped upon him. And all of that pain, and Jesus says nothing. 
And then something does happen that causes him to cry out. What was it? Jesus takes all of that excruciating physical punishment and he does not open his mouth. And then something happens and he screams out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Some kind of pain beyond the physical pain, beyond the nails, beyond the whip, has overtaken Jesus. Jesus doesn't cry out, my hands and my hands, or my feet and my feet. He cries, my God, my, say it, God. The separation from God is pain beyond the physical. Do we understand that? As bad as it is to lose money, to lose a fight, to lose your health, to lose your youth, to lose to the Mavericks, it in no way is anything compared to losing a person. It's nothing compared to losing a person or love are both in the same. Jesus in that moment loses love. He loses a being that He has known and been loved by for all of eternity. Jesus, in this moment, lost God. Physical pain, physical pain is a lesser pain than the pain of losing a person. You've heard me... um, uh, talk about this on several occasions, uh, that I had, I had experienced the death of my friend's parents for decades and had performed the ceremonies and had been with them and listened to the grief. But there was, there was something that, that, that was so eye-opening when a little over a year ago I lost my own father. And I remember thinking that, that you, can, you can lose all kinds of people around you, but to lose somebody that loves you unconditionally, that, that, that loves you as the apple of His eye, is a, is, that's a rare love in the world, and to lose it is, a, is, a, is a, a crucial moment in your life. Physical pain is less than the pain of losing a person who loves you. What good husband? What good husband would not suffer the pain of his wife's cancer in order not to lose her? What wife would not sacrifice all that she has in order to save her the loss of her husband to death? And yet, even the loss of love in a person pales at the loss of the one with whom Jesus' soul has been wrapped up in intimately for all of eternity. That's what he lost. We need those relationships like that. We need those relationships like that the way that flowers need sunlight. You take away the sun and the flowers become frozen in a frigid environment. And when Jesus lost the Father for a period of time, it was like he had been thrust into a frozen darkness and his soul unraveled. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. But then number two, not only do we see that his suffering was infinite, but his faithfulness was infinitely deep. This point is is particularly uh, very precious to me. Pretend for a moment that that you're meeting me for the very first time. You don't know me very well or, or you've never met my family. What comes to mind 
if you hear me say, my Ellen, my Ellen, or my Jessica, my Jessica, my daughter. What's being communicated is not just a relationship. It's not merely a relationship. What is being communicated is a relationship that is particularly deep. It is a deep relationship. It is the language, my Ellen, my Ellen. It is the language of special relationship. Now when Jesus says, my God, my God, it sounds on the surface like he's losing his grip. He's losing his grip. Jesus is beginning to lose it, but he's not. Do you know what the words, my God, my God, what, what the words, my God, meant for Jesus? What it meant for Jesus to say that? It was the language of covenantal faithfulness. When, when God gathers all of Israel from, from Egypt and He brings them out to Mount Sinai and they're there for that 9 to 12 months or so and they're being formed into a nation, God is entering into a covenant relationship with them and in Leviticus 26 it's described this way. He says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. My people, my God. My God, my people. That's Leviticus 26. That's the relationship that's made in covenant at Mount Sinai between Israel and God. My people, my God. That's what it meant to Jesus. And in the middle of His suffering, Jesus cries out, My God. Eloi. Jesus is in the forsakenness of God and in the language of intimacy and faithfulness says, I am still faithful to my covenant God. My God. Jesus is still loving God even in the pit of suffering. Now, now why is this important? And why is it important for us to get our minds around it? This fact. With an infinite suffering and an infinite faithfulness, we have an infinite redemption. With an infinite suffering and an infinite faithfulness, we have an infinite redemption. Daryl uh, Hutchinson this morning did such an outstanding job talking about redemption and the rescue. With this suffering and this faithfulness, we have rescue for all of eternity. You know, I, I talked this morning about uh, uh, one of the great themes in all of literature and the movies that even though at times you know, it's not very well appreciated in our culture these days and in this era, we all like happy endings. You know, another thing that really is inspiring to us, and it's, it's stories that you remember reading, examples of this kind of theme in literature growing up as kids, it's the theme of the perishing hero or the lost rescuer. The rescuer is in safety. He's, he's on the beach. He's, he's, uh, he's away from the, the, the crash. He's in safety someplace, but he chooses to leave that safety in order to help someone who is in danger. And many times the rescuer perishes. That rescuer loses their life in order for another who is about to lose their life to get it back. You remember back in 1982, Arlen Williams jumping into that freezing Potomac River, uh, that water of the Potomac there outside of D.C. in order to help those people aboard Air Florida Flight 90 to, to get out of that frigid water and to find safety on that plane. And the last time, he goes multiple times, and the last time he goes into the water, he doesn't come out. In Jesus is the pinnacle of the lost rescuer. In 1633, George Hebert wrote a poem that he entitled The Sacrifice in which uh, Hebert 
is, is, is imagining Jesus speaking from the cross. And at the end of each of the stanzas is the same phrase. Was ever grief like mine? Was ever grief like mine? And one stanza goes like this. O all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all but only me was ever grief like mine. So why did He go through? What does it mean for us? Why would He do it unless there was something in the end? Well, first, it brings a revolutionary salvation to human beings. Our visions of God are not always accurate and therefore not very moving. Think of God as a judge. God is a judge. And He's always looking with sternness upon your life. You will do what He wants you to do because you're afraid of Him. You will obey Him because you fear Him, but deep inside you despise Him, just like Martin Luther. Martin Luther would say that there was never a monk like I was a monk, but deep down I despised God because He was a judge and He looked upon me in sternness. And your behavior may be altered, you may be obedient, but you are not changed on the inside. You obey but you despise. Or suppose you think of God as some kind of a cosmic hippie who's on a trip and just loves everybody. That's fine. God loves just everybody. That's fine until you have a profound and personal need for justice. Somebody wrongs you, but there's no justice. You're not healed. You're just hurt. What we discover in the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is that God is holy and at the same time, God is love. Jesus suffered the ultimate consequences for sin because sins are a crime against the holiness of God. God created, as we have been looking at the Holy Word's uh, uh, series on Sunday morning as we looked at creation, God created the heavens and the earth. And when He looked upon it, He used the Hebrew word tov. Meaning it's good. It's what I had in my mind imagined and now it's before me created. It is good. But at the same time, Jesus suffered the ultimate consequences for sin out of love so that you wouldn't have to. God has created that good earth, but we have sinned against it and we have brought consequences and decay upon it. And that holiness has got to be dealt with. But at the same time, Jesus suffered the ultimate consequences for sin out of love so that we wouldn't have to. And when that begins to dawn inside of you, something happens. Something, something transforms you. But it also means something else. It brings the ideal companion for suffering. One of the things I've discovered about suffering is that you need friends more than you need answers. <laughs> for, uh, for, about a, for about a year, maybe out of 52 weeks, there were 43 or 44 of them, that on a Thursday I had, uh, I had lunch with a very good friend who said, I'm just going to have lunch with you. You can talk about your grief over the loss of your dad, or, or you don't, but I, I'm just going to be here. I'm just going to talk. You, you do what you want, but we're going to go to lunch. And that friendship, that friendship 
you don't have words to wield the emotion for, for that kind of friendship. Answers don't assuage the pain the way that a companion in suffering does. Answers don't help. But friends do help with the pain. And they can help us see the light at the end of the tunnel. And when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It means that God has suffered and knows what it means to bear the load of pain. That's why when the Hebrew writer, whoever that is, is unnamed, writes this incredibly important letter in the New Testament, he says, you know, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet with, was without sin. This cry gives us comfort when we feel abandoned by God. You know, there are things that hurt in this world. There are things that cause grief and there are things that, that just break our hearts. And it seems like the only thing that makes sense is at the end of the day to drop down in the front lawn and weep. This cry of Jesus gives us comfort when we feel abandoned by God. Jesus says that He is forsaken. We've all felt this. There's pain, and then there's the pain that we feel when we go through it alone. We're troubled but we're even more troubled, more profoundly troubled, because God doesn't feel very near. But we remember this. Jesus got the true abandonment in order for us to get only the apparent abandonment. Jesus got the true abandonment in order for us, for you, for me, to get only the apparent abandonment. It may feel that way, but He is near. Jesus suffered the full abandonment of God so that we would not have to. Yes, sometimes it feels like God is not there. But He is. And as you know, feelings are not reliable, but God is. And we stand on the promises going back to Hebrews chapter 13 when God says, Never will I leave you. Do you know why that's a true fact? It's because somebody paid for your sins. Do you know why you can hear God say to you, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's because somebody else has taken the forsakenness that you deserve and I deserve and that we all deserve and by faith have come out of through the grace of God and the love and the mercy and the compassion and have not just gotten out of the forsakenness that we deserve because of our sin, but we receive the gift of adoption as children, made heirs. We receive what the Son receives. Because for a period of time, the most sensitive man who ever lived. A perfect man without sin. Left the greatness and the perfection and the holiness and the safety of heaven and endured the cross because of the joy set before him. Because Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, we can hear God say, never will I leave you, 
and never will I forsake you. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front and Jeff's going to lead us in a song. And this is an opportunity. We call it an invitation, but it's an opportunity. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a choice point in your life. That's really what it is. It's a place where you decide, do I really believe in the reality that the resurrection, it is a truth, it is a historical fact that it took place. And now I understand what it means. And I want to be a part of what it means. I want the meaning, the definition, the, the abundance of, of grace and gift and blessing that comes out of the resurrection, out of Jesus' crucifixion, out of His death, burial, and resurrection. I want that blessing to be a blessing that flows into the darkness of my life and brings light. I want that. Well, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front and they would love to talk to you about how that happens. And you can do that by coming forward and talking to them as we stand.